received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And this is where he says it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Amen. We welcome now Brendan Hurley to the pulpit. Thank you. Great pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, A very friendly church, I find. Uh, As I walked in the door, the first thing someone said to me was, I think you've lost weight. And (laughs) I was like, man, I should come here every morning. Um, Which is quite hard because when you go to Down to Earth regularly, you don't get up until 12 in the afternoon, you know, midday. So it's quite, I'm a bit bleary eyed, but good to be here. when I was asked to do this sermon on the gospel, uh, I was really excited, I must admit. I thought, yeah, what, you know, if you're going to choose any topic, and I'm not often doing topics as a talk, but if you're going to choose any topic, what a great topic to choose. Uh, and I started pulling at the thread and I thought, oh, this will be easy, no worries. And then I just found, wow, there is heaps about the gospel that I just can't put in one sermon. So can I recommend, uh, here are two books that you can actually buy out the back Uh, by John Chapman, and it's not that he's the only guy who's worth reading, but he's a really good guy worth reading. Uh, The first one's called Making the Most of the Cross, and it's a a really good book about the death and resurrection of Jesus, what it means, uh, and it's not overly complicated. I I mean, it doesn't have pictures, so it's not quite what I'm after, but um, it's a really good book and very helpful, very clear, uh, good one to read. Uh, the other one he's written that's probably more designed for non-Christians but still a good read for Christians is called A Fresh Start. And uh, it's really how do I have a fresh start with God? What has Jesus done to enable that? Two great books. If you want to find out more about the Gospel, uh, they're up the back. If you're a newcomer here today, uh, can I say these are on the house? We'd like to give them to you as a gift uh, if that's okay. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, it is so easy to listen to a Bible talk and come away thinking, what a great sermon, what a good preacher. But Father, we pray that no one would do that today. We pray that we would all leave here today thinking, what a great God we have. That we would think, how good is the Lord Jesus. Please help us to lift up our eyes and to see you as you really are 
to see your goodness and your love towards us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by looking at the beauty pageant question. Is this working? Oh dear. (laughs) Is it working, Warren? Getting no love from the sound and tech guys, but that's okay. I'll just sort of do a little wink and a nod and they can change the slide. Um, What I want you to do is imagine that you were in a beauty pageant. Now, that's going to be harder for some people than it is for others, Um, but I want you to sort of, you know, imagine you're there on the catwalk, you're strutting your stuff, you flick your hair back and give them the little look, and, and I want... and. The judges ask you the question they always ask everyone in a beauty pageant. You know the question, if there was one thing that you could change about the world, what would you change? And because your coaches have really helped you, you know, do the best that you can do, well, you know the answer. It's an obvious answer. World peace. Like, that's what you know you're meant to say. Like, that's, that's exactly what you're meant to say. But... I want you to imagine that as you stood up there, something unexpected happened. The judges asked you a follow-up question and they said to you, well, how would you do it? How would you achieve world peace? Well, what would you say then? I mean, your coach hasn't told you what to say and I don't know if your brain, you know, can work that, like if you're a beauty pageant. Oh, that's a bit harsh. Um, (laughs) So, turn to the person next to you, you, you might need some counselling uh, from each other, as to what would you do to bring about world peace? You've got 30 seconds. There are many answers we could give to this problematic question uh, and I really hope one day to see it when I flick on a beauty pageant sometime. Uh, Some of the most popular ones I can think of, and I don't know if anyone came up with this, but I think we'd often see things like education, you know, or maybe more like food, more resources, more energy, that sort of thing. Maybe they're the things that would bring about world peace. I think, I don't know, maybe you disagree with me, but I think they're quite popular ideas. But the problem is, I don't actually think they work. I mean, whilst these are good things, even if we did them all, we wouldn't actually bring about world peace. See, more education does a lot of good, uh, but it also creates smarter criminals. People who hack credit cards, con artists, corrupt politicians, those involved in white-collar crime, well, they usually have an excellent education. And whilst more resources seem like a good idea, well, 
that's actually not a problem for us in our world. Half the world is dying of starvation, while the other half, like me, are dying of obesity. It's, you know, and I'm trying to get better at it, but we all have, I mean, we have everything we need in our world, don't we? And yet, for some reason, we're so greedy and selfish. We just don't know how to share. So, what is the problem in our world? How do we bring about world peace? How can we fix it? How can we bring real change? And today, I want to persuade you that our greatest individual need as an individual, as a church and as a world is the gospel. And so, we're going to look together at three things. We're going to look at the conviction needed to understand the gospel. We're going to look at the components, the the parts that make up the gospel. And we're going to look at the change brought about by the gospel. Um, So, the conviction needed to understand the gospel. Too often today, when Christians talk with non-Christians about Christianity, they rush to the gospel. And I can see why. Because it's such a wonderful thing. We just want to tell people about it. Uh, But I think if we look at what the Bible says, usually what happens is people do a bit of groundwork first before they get to the gospel. Uh, For example, when Jesus speaks to the rich young ruler in Mark 10, he doesn't just jump straight into the gospel. He spends some time showing him what God is like and what he is like. Paul does the same thing when he speaks uh, to the uh, Athenians at the Areopagus in Acts 17. He hardly mentions the gospel until the very end of his speech. See, without the right background, without the right context, without the right conviction about yourself and God, you'll actually distort the gospel. It's a great little proverb that someone once told me. You can't agree on the solution unless you agree on the problem. So you've got to work that out first or otherwise you'll probably distort and misunderstand the gospel. You can't know the good news until you know the bad news. So what is the conviction we need to have to understand the gospel? Well, it is that we are sinners facing the anger and punishment of a holy, good and all-powerful God. We are sinners facing the anger and punishment of a holy, good and all-powerful God. The gospel is a message for sinners. As the preacher C.H. Spurgeon said, I have no gospel to preach to the self-righteous. Jesus himself says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Yet, I don't know if you've noticed it, but today it's really difficult to convince people that they are sinners standing before an angry God. I mean, I go to the ECU campus, that's where I work, and I thank you guys that you actually free me up to do that. Um, I run the Christian Union there, and I just bash my head against a wall half the time trying to convince people that they are sinners. They don't want a bar of it. It's really difficult. And so, uh, it makes you wonder sometimes, are we really sinners before a God who's angry with us? Well, The Bible's pretty clear that we are. Come with me to uh, Romans 1.18. And if you don't want to come, you can go on the screen. Um, uh, 
And it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, straight away we see that God is angry. Righteously angry, but angry. And that's what wrath means. It just means anger. Uh, And what is he angry about? Well, did you see it there? It's all the unrighteousness and wickedness of sinful men. It's all the unrighteousness. All sin is serious. Because it's all treason. It's all rebellion. It's all enmity against God. It is us separating ourselves from God. It is saying to God, get stuff, get out of my life, leave me alone, I'm, I'm the boss of me. It was so great singing that song about how Jesus is the boss of me because so often we think I'm the boss of me. Well, that's actually at the heart of sin. And you could say to me, well, Brendan, I don't actually say these things when I sin. I don't even think about God. Well, isn't that the point? You, you actually don't think about God. You don't care what he thinks. See, it's even worse than that, isn't it? Even when we do good things, if you're not a Christian, we're actually expressing our sinfulness. It's not just the action, but it's the attitude and the motivation behind your actions. If you're not doing it to serve God, you can do wonderful things that are actually not very good. It's a lot like a sailor I know named Jack. Jack is a wonderful sailor. He swabs the decks, he cleans them, uh, he looks out for the other people on the ship and you know when they're feeling tired and, and, and worn out, he comes along and he, he goes, look, you know, have, here's some breakfast I made for you. I'll take your, your shift on the uh, watching out for things. You know, Jack is a really, really good sailor. And you think, wow, what a great guy Jack is. But then as you stand back and look down your telescope and have a look at who Jack is, you actually see the ship that Jack is on. Jack is on a pirate ship. See, actually his good things are serving piracy. They're not serving uh, the government that should be in place. And so we have wonderful people in our society, good people who do nice things and moral things, but they're still enemies of God because they're doing their nice things to serve themselves and not God. Uh, come with me, with, or actually it's on the screen, uh, save your flipping fingers for later. Um, this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And the flesh there is just talking about uh, having a sinful nature. See, you know, you can help the little old lady cross the road, but it's your heart, it's your motivation. What's the reason that you're doing it? That's, that's what counts. And if it's not for God's glory, you're actually an enemy of God. But we also saw there in uh, Romans one eighteen that the very nature of sin is that it suppresses, it hides, it covers up the truth about God. It exchanges the truth of God for a lie. See, that's why, you know, you can do good things, but actually 
what you're doing is something very simple because you're covering up, you're hiding from God by the way you do your good things. See, God made us and we owe him everything. Yet we treat him often as if he didn't exist. We ignore him. We won't listen to him. We want to be the deciders. We want to be the rule makers, not God. And that means our problem is that we love sin. We love being in charge. And we don't love God telling us what to do. It's a bit like Macca's. It seems like a good idea at the time, uh, but actually it's really bad for us. That's what sin's like uh, in the long run. And even though it's bad for us, we just keep going back there again and again and again. Sin is so deceptive because at the heart of sin is a lie. It's a lie that God doesn't want what is good for me. It's the lie that God doesn't know or care or can give me what is best for me. And so sin makes us remove God from our lives. If I suppress the truth about God, well, he can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. He can't tell me that what I'm doing is deadly and destructive and and bad, not just for me, but for other people. Sin suppresses the truth about God. But why is God so angry with sin? Why does he care? Why doesn't he just ignore it? Well, it's actually because he's loving See, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. God hates sin. He's angry with sinners because he is loving. Can you imagine a God who didn't care about the Holocaust? A God who didn't care about September 11? A God who didn't care about that guy on the news who shot up all those people at the Batman movie? I mean, if God is going to be angry at sin and evil... That is a good thing. But if he's going to be angry at sin and evil, he's got to be angry at all sin and evil. Every sin. Every little white lie. But here's the big problem. God is that sort of God. He is so good that he can't be near sinners. Take a look at uh, Psalm 5, verse 4 to 6. For you not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. It's a little bit like milk. See, I love a good glass of milk. It's nice, it's refreshing, it's tasty. It's really good for you. But... If I add a little bit of poo to that milk, uh, you see, you can tell that I love doing youth and uni stuff because all my illustrations are really like year eight boy kind of thing. Um, But if you add a little bit of poo to that milk, it doesn't matter uh, whether it's a big bit of poo or a little bit of poo, you're not going to drink any of the milk. And it is exactly the same with God. He looks at our sin and he goes, I don't care if it's a big heaping wad of sin or a tiny little bit of sin, it's disgusting and I'm not going to go near it. That's the way God views sin. He is so holy and so good that with him sin cannot dwell. And that causes a huge problem for us. It means that God is angry and he's angry in two different ways. The first is that he's setting up uh, a final judgment. Here's what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says about those who don't obey the gospel, who don't know God. 
they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, God will judge the world and he'll hold it to account. People often talk about God as if, you know, I wish God would come in and clean up the mess. The world is in such a mess. I wish God would just come and do something about it. Well, friend, if that's you, are you ready to be cleaned up? You're part of the mess. And the way God cleans up the mess is he cuts people off from God and all his good gifts forever. That's what hell is. It's not Satan running around in spandex having a six-pack with his mates. It's being cut off from God. It's a horrible thing. It's being God out of God's presence forever with no way of getting back in, no hope, no relationships, no joy. It's a terrible thought. But it's perfectly just. I mean, people spend their life saying to God, stay out of my existence. I don't want you in my life. And hell is just God saying, okay. God doesn't delight in our rebellion. He's angry with us, but he, he is delaying his final judgment. Uh, have a look here at 2 Peter 3.9. Okay, 2 Peter 3.9 is not there, don't worry. Uh, but it tells us that God is finding a way, he, he's delaying his judgment so that people may find a way out. And that way out is the gospel. So what's happening in the meantime? Well, come with me in your Bibles to Romans uh, 1. The favourite uh, sound of a preacher is hearing paper rustling when the Bible's read and when the offertory's being collected. Um, that's a very crass joke. I apologise. Um, Romans 1 verse 24 Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then you see again in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. And in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, God is angry at sin now, but he's delaying judgment. But in the meantime, what is God doing? Well, he's revealing his anger by letting us sin. The punishment that God gives us is that we get to keep sinning. He lets us keep stuffing up the world, making a mess of it, so that we will see that life without God is awful. So that we will see that we need him. And have a look there again at verse 28. Uh, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Just turn on the TV and you'll see that, won't you? That's exactly what our world is like. See, here is the thing about us humans. We think we can do it all without God. We think, hey, I can, I've got it sorted, God. We'll fix up the world. We'll, we'll come up with our own way of doing it. 
It's the, the great humanist dream, the secular dream. We're a resourceful bunch. But God has actually provided a way out for our world, a way out for us as individuals, and it's the gospel. I mean, it's not just in the secular atheist world where we see that. We actually see it in religion as well. See, religion is all about what we do. It's about I try and bring my way to God. But Christianity is all about what God has done for us. The two greatest words, uh, letters in the English language are N and E because it's what God has done, not what we do. Religion blinds us to the fact that we're helpless and hopeless on our own. And that's what we see here in Psalm 49, uh, which we had read to us, especially in verse 7 to 9. We see that wickedness or religion, either one, it just can't help us at all. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. See, the very best, all I could ever do is trade one person for another and and no one else is not a sinner. So, well, you know, I can't actually trade anyone. Uh, I can't offer God a bribe. I can't offer God anything, really. What am I going to give God that he hasn't already got? See, there's no way we can actually earn our way back to God. Whether it's money, whether it's good things we do, God is God. There's nothing that we could give him. We owe him everything. He owes us nothing. At a church I used to go to in Sydney, uh, there was a guy who once rocked up uh, who was a friend of one of the uh, pastors there. And this guy uh, had seen his friend and and, uh, said, oh, I go to your church. And and he said, oh, really? Cool. You know, I hope to see you there sometime. And this guy rocked up for one Sunday and my friend was a bit surprised because he'd never seen this guy at church, even though he'd been going there eight years. And, uh, but this guy said, yeah, no, I come to church. And this guy rocked up and gave him a cheque for five grand. And I mean, that's a really wonderful thing. It's a good thing for the church, but it's just such a deluded thing, isn't it? Do you think that you can pay off God and go, hey, God, here's five grand, means I'm a Christian, means I'm sorted with you, Not at all. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. What can we offer God? Nothing. And so the Bible's message is that we are hopeless sinners. We're slaves to sin. We can't deal with sin. We're captives to it. And it's only when we're convicted of that that we can understand the gospel. But if you're still not convinced, I'd like to do a little experiment. Let's take lying, for example. See, one murder equals a murderer. One lie equals a liar. Hands up if you've never told a lie. See, if you put your hand up, we wouldn't believe you anyway. Um, God hates lies. They are a sin. You've lied well, you're a sinner, aren't you? You're a liar. And if you're here and you think that you can stop sinning on your own, well, try this little test for me. 
this week go out and stop lying. Just for one week, it's not, you know, it's only one sin out of many. Just stop lying. No white lies, no black lies, no grey lies, no any coloured lies. Just don't lie. See if you can be free of it. And then come back and tell me how it went. For the rest of us though, we need God's help. We need the gospel. But what is the gospel? What are the components that make up the gospel? Well, the word gospel, I mean, it's a funny word. There's a new song out by Fun and they talk about the gospel and I've been sitting there just scratching my head all week because it's just playing on the radio every time I switch it on. I can't work out what they mean by the word gospel. But the word gospel just means big, important news. It's a message. It's an announcement. It's really big stuff. It's world-changing news. It's man landing on the moon kind of news. It's the end of a world war kind of news. This is a message. This is a news that changes everything. But it's not just any message. Come with me to Galatians 1, 11 to 12. <coughs> For I would have you know, brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is not just my gospel that I sat down there and for weeks and weeks tried to come up with. As This is God's gospel. It's his message. It's his world-changing news. Uh, it's as if God jumped into the TV and put up newsflash and said, yeah, here's what I've got to say to you. See, and it's actually quite amazing when you think about it. The guys who wrote, uh, this is Paul writing this in Galatians, but the guys who went and first preached the gospel were so convinced that it was God's gospel, God's message, that they actually died for it. You know, they weren't there trying to make an extra buck. Uh, they weren't there trying to, you know, get some popularity and get on the front of a magazine or something like that. These guys died for the gospel. They were martyred for it, except one of them who was boiled alive, uh, survived, and then was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the last book of the Bible. Now, I can tell you as soon as they put me in the deep fryer at Macca's, uh, I am thinking, do I really believe this or not, you know? Uh, this is hardcore. No one knowingly dies for a lie. They believed that it was God's message and that it was a message worth dying for. So what is the message about? Well, this is where you get to do some work. Um, we've got a bunch of passages that are going to come up and what I want you guys to do is in little groups uh, to go through a line of the passages and see what the common thread or theme in those passages are. Uh, so if you're sort of over here, uh, you guys can do A. Some of you guys can do B. Some of you guys can do C. I'm not too strict on it and just sort of keep going. And uh, let's see what everyone comes up with. Uh, so you only have to do one line uh, and you've got three minutes to do it.
Thanks for doing One more minute. And remember, it's looking for the key thread that runs through those passages. So... You know it already. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll have to wrap it up there. I hope you uh, were very speedy with your Bible flipping. And does anyone from who did A want to tell us kind of the key thread that you guys found uh, throughout your one? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So... Uh, just oh, actually, sorry, I'm very poor, aren't I? Um, the first thing I want to say is, uh, if we go to the next bit, is that the gospel's like a multifaceted diamond. I hope by the end of this you'll see that uh, that it, it's one thing, but it's got so many amazing aspects and sides to it. Uh, it's really fantastic. But yeah, like if we go to our next slide, we've got um, <coughs> oop, the next one. Sorry. There we go. That Yeah, we've got this idea that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, that he takes away sins. I mean, the actual name Jesus, or the, the sentence Jesus Christ is Lord, if we have a look at what that means, uh, we've got three main things really about what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. It means that, uh, we'll go to the next one, it means that he's a perfect man in history who comes to save people. That's what you guys were saying, isn't it? Uh, he does good things. He, he lives the way God wants us to live, perfectly. And he's God's king. That's what Christ means. But the king didn't come just to you know, sit on a throne and look groovy. He came to sacrificially die for our sins. That's the purpose of what the Christ was doing. He came to suffer and then be glorified. And he's glorified now as the divine resurrected ruler and judge. That's what it means that he's Lord. Jesus is God and he's ruling over everything. 
and he will one day return and judge the living and the dead. So, yeah, good job. Uh, if we go to the next one, we've got the guys who are B. Oh, already told you what the answer is. Sorry, guys. Uh, you know, you get let off easy. But it's that Christ died for our sins. He was buried, rose from the dead and appeared to many according to the scriptures. Over 500 people saw Jesus alive. Isn't that amazing? Um, okay, I won't go to the next one. What about C? What have you guys got? What did you come up with? Sorry? Oh, you were B. Okay, who's C? Where's C? Anyone do C? Kingdom. Yeah, it's God's kingdom. So it's that, uh, that the gospel is all about how God brings his rule into the world and over the world. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and then the next one, who was D? Be bold. Sin boldly. Oh, no, go. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so I think it so it's that he's Saviour, Christ and Lord. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Like uh, he's come to save us, he's the Christ, he's the King and he's the Lord. It's very similar to the other one. <laughs> what about uh, 2 Timothy and Romans 1? Who had that? Yep. Yeah, descendant of David, risen from the dead, son of God in power. Yep, awesome. Uh Acts and Acts 10 and those ones, these ones might, yeah, who had that one? Yeah, he's ruler and judge, totally. Uh, You know, Jesus is going to judge everything. Gee, it's not a popular message, but that's actually part of the gospel. Uh, And Romans 1 and 16 and all these kind of cool groovy ones, who had those? Yep. Yeah, totally. That's the power of God for salvation. It's God's salvation. It's God's grace. It's God's mercy. And Mark 10:45 and Romans, all the fun ones. Who had the fun ones? Yep. Totally. So it's that Jesus is our ransom. It's, it's, it's substitutions built into that massively. He's the one who uh, turns, and he's our propitiation. That means. God's wrath is coming at us and it's turned away onto Jesus. Uh, The way I like to describe it is we've got these two things. Uh, The first slide comes up. Okay, well, there we go. Uh, (laughs) Never what I want. Um, The first one's talking about, remember in Psalm 49, we saw we couldn't do it ourselves. But later in the psalm, the psalmist actually says, but God will ransom my uh, soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. God's the one who's able to do it. And it just shows that Jesus is actually God. If he isn't God, then his substitute, his ransom, isn't good enough. It can only pay maybe at least one person for another person, but because he's God, he's worth more than all humanity. He can actually be a ransom for everybody. So he's not, Jesus is not just good enough to be our substitute, he's God enough. Um, But yeah, we also look at the next thing. I love this poster. Jesus did a trade, his life for yours. I mean, that's really the idea of ransom, isn't it? You've got the the kidnapper, the hostage, and someone comes along and says, hey, I'll take their place so that they can go free. I'll buy their freedom. That's the idea of ransom or substitution. 
Uh, the other one is propitiation and it's kind of like the action hero who jumps in front of the bullet and takes, uh, takes it for someone else. That's the idea of propitiation. The wrath is turned aside onto Jesus so that we don't have to face it. That's what's going on at the cross. Uh, it's amazing to think what that actually means and really it means that on the cross Jesus faced hell so that we didn't have to. Um, he's facing God's wrath, God's anger, God's separation. That's what's going on at the cross. So, what is the gospel? Well, the common factor in each of these is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is a person. And I mean, we've got to ask which Jesus. It's not, uh, you know, in Paul's day even, in 2 Corinthians 11, there were phony super apostles coming around trying to preach a Jesus different to what Paul was preaching. It's not a phony Jesus. It's the biblical Jesus. It's the way God views Jesus. That's the Jesus of the gospel. That's what the gospel is. Uh, And this means that the gospel is a word we use to sum up the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, Theologians call it the person and work of Christ. So all these passages are actually the gospel. They all show us Jesus as he really is. But does this mean when I'm talking to a non-Christian about the gospel that I have to like sit there and go through every single passage and uh, show them every single thing that we said there? And uh, Well, actually, no. Because the gospel is a bit like a piano accordion. You know, it can be really small like this or we can expand it right out like that. And either way, it's still the gospel. You know, I can say Jesus is the saving Lord or I can say Jesus is the God-man who came into the world to die for sins on, with his death on the cross and then rose again as Lord of all over everything and he's going to come and return and be the judge of the living and the dead. Both are still the gospel but one's just, you know, uh, spread out or uncompacted, I guess. Uh, another way that you can think about it if you're more mathematical and I'm not so please keep up if you're not, uh, is that it's a bit like a circle. Uh, And we've got here on the circle an arc in the circle. And with the circle, each arc implies the rest of the circle. You know, if you distort it, you end up with something that's not a circle. So, you know, Jesus... Yeah, if you say Jesus isn't God, I mean, that's like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't preach the gospel because they've distorted the gospel. They say Jesus isn't God, so he can't really pay for our sins and the whole... Circle gets distorted. If we go to our next one, you get, you know, it's all changed and it's not as it should be. It's not a circle anymore. But the great thing about it, seeing it as a circle is you don't have to do preach every bit or tell every bit. Each arc implies the rest. And the whole is made up of all the arcs. Now, in the same way, as we said, if you deny or distort one arc, you deny the rest. And the circle isn't a circle anymore. But I hope you can see there's a connection between the components of the gospel because the gospel is a person. To know the gospel is to know Jesus. And you don't have to know everything, every single thing about a person to have a trusting and loving relationship with them. But you have to know some things and they have to be true things. And as they tell you more, you have to believe what they're saying. 
So as, you know, someone may have enough in knowing that Jesus died and rose from the dead, but, you know, as they grow and listen to Jesus more, they'll learn other things about the Trinity and about what his death meant. And so it's really quite simple at one level and magnificently profound at another. But there are two things that dominate the biblical gospel, two themes that we need to keep together think about and present to people if we don't want to distort the gospel and they are that Jesus is both ruler and rescuer. See the death and resurrection of Jesus is so fundamental to the gospel because there we see clearly that Jesus is both our ruler and rescuer. Jesus can't be the ruler and rescuer without them and so being a Christian, a gospel Christian and there's no other kind, uh, is turning to and trusting Jesus as both your ruler and rescuer. And this has big implications for us. It means that it's not enough to live with Jesus just as your rescuer, nor is it enough to live with him just as your ruler. He's both. And in our lives we need to live with him as both. And yet so often in churches and with Christians we can so overemphasise one against the other uh, and we muck it up. I mean, some of us live lives so ridden with guilt, so aware of our failures. We see Jesus as our ruler, but we've forgotten the love, the grace, the mercy that we have because Jesus is our rescuer by his death on the cross. And if that is you, you need to hear again that all your sin is paid for, that Jesus' rescue is a complete rescue. God loves you to death. Literally. And when he says you're forgiven, you really are. No matter how bad your sin is, you can be confident and assured that your eternal life with God is secure because he's the one who won it. On the flip side, there are some of us here who see so clearly that Jesus is our rescuer but have forgotten that he is our ruler that we've become so slack with our sin. And we buy into the lies that it tells us. As John Owen said, if you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. And we've forgotten that sin is really deadly and dangerous and that we are free from it in Christ. We've lost sight of how living with Jesus as your ruler really is the good life. See, the Christian life is that he's both ruler and rescuer. We're people of the crucified king and we need to cling to both. If we only have one or the other, we distort the gospel. So where do you need to change your picture of Jesus? Where do you need to, again, look at the gospel and see it clearly in in a balanced way? But there's another big implication. See, we also have to ask, is Jesus my ruler and my rescuer? Because... We all have a gospel. If it's not Jesus, we just replace Jesus with something else, don't we? It could be our job and our career. We trust it to rescue us from you know, insecurity. It could be my money. It could be a relationship with another person. It could be all sorts of things. That's really the heart of idolatry, isn't it? Is that you just make something other than Jesus or God ruler and rescuer over your life. We all have a gospel. But is our gospel Jesus? 
And finally, we see that the fruit and, and the benefits of the gospel. See, Christians are people with glorious benefits. Uh, there's a change brought about by the gospel. And the benefits actually relate to the rule and rescue of Christ. See, what do you gain by being a Christian? I mean, why would anyone do it? You get hardships, you get persecution, you're unpopular. The cost to live as a Christian is a big one. Why would anyone become one? Well, the benefits are, before God, you have a new position and a new condition. The penalty of sin is taken away and your heart is changed. You're a new person. God does radical heart surgery on you of the spiritual kind. See, the power and penalty of sin has been taken away by Jesus. That's, that's the joy of being a Christian. And you can have a relationship with God together with his people. And guys, to be honest, as a Christian, people think I'm incredibly arrogant. Why? Because I'm 100% confident that I'm going to heaven. And it's not that I'm a good person. I know I'm a scumbag sinner. I know I deserve hell. But Jesus is good. And it's only his death that has cleansed me from all my sins. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And so I can live my Christian life with confidence. I'm someone accepted by God. The God who rules everything loves me. And he's rescued me and he's keeping me. And he'll return to take me to eternal paradise. Will there be no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death? But as I said before, God does more than that. He makes us a new people. He does major heart surgery. We have a new attitude. We have a new desire. We have new thinking that leads us to a new way of living. We're people becoming more and more like Jesus. And that's not that we have a beard and a bed sheet. It's that... We are people who are patient, who are loving, who are kind, who sacrificially live for other people. You know, a church should be a fantastic place because everyone should be looking like Jesus because they've been moved and changed by the gospel. John Newton, uh, if you've never heard of him, he's an amazing guy. He was a slave trader uh, and, you know, saw many slaves tortured and and killed Um, but he wrote the song Amazing Grace and that's probably what he's most remembered for Uh, and he as a Christian was a wonderful guy really fantastic but I think there are two other quotes that he had that almost trump Amazing Grace, I don't know if that's a safe thing to say Uh, but two quotes I love that really sum up the benefits of being a Christian as he was uh, on his deathbed he had Alzheimer's and someone asked him, what, what do you still remember? And he said, these two things I still remember. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. He knew exactly who he was and he knew that Jesus, the ruler of all, had rescued him, that he would have eternal life with him. And the other quote he said was, about himself, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was a new person, 
totally different with new desires, new attitude, a new heart. That's the benefit of being a Christian and so often we just forget how good it is. We look at the rest of the world and go, man, I just wish I had the cool car and the James Bond lifestyle or, you know, just the Australian dream even. Actually, the rest of the world should be looking at us, going, I wish I had what they have. Because what we have is more valuable by far. So what does all this mean for us? Well, we have to finish some implications. Firstly, we never stop needing the gospel. You don't become a Christian by the gospel and then move on to something else. You always need the gospel. It's, it's the centre of everything. We need to keep coming back to it. Secondly, gospel plus equals gospel minus. If you add something to the gospel, you take away from it. It's not the gospel anymore. All we need is the gospel. Jesus is a sufficient ruler and rescuer. We don't need anything else. We don't need to add good works to what we do. We don't need to come at God with, God's done it all. We just need to trust him. Secondly, uh, thirdly, the world doesn't believe the gospel because the church doesn't. See, if I was reading this book by Borton Knox, who's an amazing guy. Uh, he was the principal of Moore College for a while. And he was saying, you know why the world isn't like full of people who are trusting Jesus and following it? Why We're just not seeing that over in the West. And he said the reason is because the church doesn't really believe the gospel itself. If we took the gospel so seriously that we, we saw that people are going to hell when they could have a free offer of eternal life, if we saw that was reality, we'd do everything differently. We wouldn't complain, we'd be loving, we'd be sacrificial, we'd be sharing the gospel any opportunity we had, we'd be praying the world doesn't believe the gospel because the church doesn't. Fourthly, the gospel is the only way to build true community and mission. That's our series that we're looking at. And I hope as you see through, we go through this series, you'll see that we can't really do mission or community without the gospel. It's going to be dud if you do. And you, if you do community and mission without the gospel, you just end up with this husk of a church uh, where, you know, it's not going real good. We need to keep coming back to the gospel to grow as a community and to be missionaries. If we don't, we will fail. And the final thing is, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you that you really need to consider Jesus. He is the ultimate ruler and rescuer. And so, if you want to become a Christian... I'm going to say a prayer now and this prayer isn't a magic prayer. That you know, It's just taking a first step in a relationship with Jesus. Because being a Christian is turning to Jesus, trusting Jesus and treasuring a relationship with Jesus. That's all it is. So how about we pray and if you want to become a Christian, just say this prayer silently in your own heart as I pray. Dear God, I am sorry for rebelling against you. 
Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Thank you that he has taken the punishment I deserve. Please help me to live a new life with Jesus as my boss. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you've prayed that, uh, that means you've taken a step to knowing Jesus and being a Christian and we would love you to come and, and tell us that. So come and chat with Dave or myself and uh, we'll help you make some of the next steps as well.